Well, up until this past year, uh, we had a record event in the city of Memphis that many of us referred to as the Great Ice Storm of 1994. Now, I will disagree with this statement, but many people say that this year's storm uh, eclipsed in the loss of power and damage that we faced in 1994. Um, as a young man that lived through that, I would disagree. Um, but I, I will acknowledge that I'm a little biased because my circumstances were very different back then. Um, I lived on five acres of land, and we didn't have power for two weeks in 1994. There was an inch of ice that was on everything covering the city. I think they said there was only a quarter to half an inch of ice in this past year. Uh, although 272,000 residents were without power this year, only 250,000 in 1994. So regardless, however you might agree or disagree, it was a crazy time um, to live in and live through. And I was um, a junior in high school, and I worked at Kroger as a bagger. And it was chaotic to imagine that a grocery store was going to stay open in the midst of a, pan or a, a, a natural disaster like that and, and try to serve customers without any power in the building uh, they ran all the refrigerated items and frozen items on generators, which meant we had no power for lights. So my job as a bagger uh, slash um, illuminator was to walk around with a flashlight and give light to customers while they tried to shop these two weeks. Now, as you can imagine, in any natural disaster or any disaster of that kind, people are always in the, just the nature of sin going to take advantage of this situation. And so uh, there was a particular day that we were walking around uh, giving light to customers as they shopped, and we noticed a very suspicious woman that was acting very odd. She was shopping without any light and any assistance. She was using the darkness for her advantage because she was continually taking trips back to the meat counter and shoving packaged meat in her clothes and walking out of the store. And so when we suspected her and we shined the light of the truth, as you might say metaphorically and physical light, on her, she began to run out of the store with meat, <laughs> with packaged meat flailing around out, out of her clothing until one of our, custom, one of our uh, employees tackled her in the parking lot until the police arrived. Now, I tell you that story this morning because, or this afternoon, because I feel like uh, it, it casts a, a good light and a good metaphorical analogy on uh, the, the imagery that is given in the Bible uh, when it comes to truth and uh, lies or errors, or we might say um, light representing God and his truth, the truth of the gospel message, and the darkness of sin and evil. And we see these metaphors throughout the Bible. And what these contrasts are made because for our human perception and understanding, we can see them. And so understanding the evil that occurs in darkness helps us understand the uh, 
the, the blessing and the usefulness of light in the midst of darkness. It was very useful for me in 1994 to play a part in apprehending this woman. There's other contrasts that are being given. Matter of fact, Paul has been teaching us these contrasts in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He's used the idea of the fool and the wise, the fool being those who reject God's wisdom, who are succumbing to the darkness of this world, the sin in their own nature, versus those who are wise by believing the wisdom of God. Therefore, they are believing the light of the gospel. And we see a similar uh, kind of contrast in our passage today. Um, We will be looking at verses 6 through uh, 10 today. Um, But the overall message in verses 6 through 16 is about how the wisdom of God is revealed by the Spirit. And the contrast today will be that those who receive the gospel message or the God's wisdom and those who reject it. Matter of fact, this flows really well with the sermon last week about the preaching of God's word, the way in which Paul preached uh, the message of the gospel. And this week you could say that, that this is really focused on the way in which that message is being received. So you might uh, come to understand that uh, as the, the, the message of the gospel or the wisdom of God is proclaimed throughout the world, it always Uh, has different reception. It has different ways of response. And we see that throughout ministry, how people respond to the the truth of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. And what Paul is doing in this passage from verses 6 to 16 is first he's, uh, he's identifying the way in which people respond to the wisdom of God or the message of the gospel. And then he begins to reason and explain why those receptions exist. And we know these famous passages in verses 11 through 16 that the reason the reception of the gospel truly comes to fruitfulness and belief in Christ is because it is given by the Spirit. And those who reject the message are of the flesh and don't have the power of the Spirit that's enabling them. But we're going to focus today first on the idea of which uh, Paul is giving us as far as the reception of God's wisdom. I say this as spiritual realities uh, about God's wisdom. Spiritual realities about God's wisdom. And as we think about this, Paul begins by talking about those who receive the message, the reception of God's wisdom, as I would say. And Paul begins by identifying them as those who are mature. He says in verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although he says it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now it's interesting here because he calls those who receive the gospel as mature. And there's been some debate and there's been some uh, difference of opinion about why Paul uses the word mature. Because some translations may say complete, some may say mature. And the idea that, uh, that Paul is trying to convey is not that there is a different class of Christianity, those that are immature and mature. Although we would all say that we are maturing in Christ 
There are some new in their faith and those that are growing in in more maturity as they have lived a, a longer life of the spiritual life. We can obviously acknowledge that some people are just more spiritually mature than others as they have lived and been faithful in Christ. Paul's not talking about that maturity here. Because he is making a clear distinction that he imparts wisdom and his preaching to the mature. Now, if Paul is making a classification and distinction between the spiritually mature and the immature, then Paul would literally be saying, I only preach God's wisdom to mature Christians and mature believers. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Instead, it's better understood that Paul is using a word from the culture of Corinth as a play on words because the Corinthians and these, uh, uh, these wise elites as they considered themselves to be, they are the ones, Paul's opponents that had influenced the church in Corinth, they are the ones who considered themselves mature. They are the ones who considered themselves wise in their own understanding of wisdom. But the interesting thing is that they are self-appointed, mature, wise people. They, they are literally calling themselves, considering themselves mature because their man-made wisdom, they believe, has made them wise to understand the culture and wise to understand and, and be a greater authority over others. Calling themselves mature based on their own human wisdom is like giving yourself a promotion at work, even though no higher authority has approved that promotion. You just walk around your, your office calling yourself the CEO of the, of the company. And the people are going to laugh at you and think you're, you're a moron. The truth is, is that Paul is using the idea of mature in that phrase to say, we impart wisdom to the mature, meaning those who are believers, those who have received the message of the gospel. That's why he is focusing on uh, this distinction. And he'll continue this understanding. Look at verse 7. He says, because we impart a secret wisdom... Hidden, uh, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul makes the distinction. Those who are mature, which are believers in the church of Corinth, true believers, genuine believers, they have received the wisdom of God that stands apart from the, the, the hidden secret wisdom that was not understood by the lost. And so see this distinction here. He is comparing the mature with those who have rejected the gospel, which he entitles the rulers of this age. Now let's focus on this mystery that's revealed first of all. Paul calls this mystery a wisdom from God. That is a mystery, mysterion, a, a secret that is hidden. Much like that woman was hiding herself in the, the cloak of darkness in order to, to, uh, to be a part of evil. Here the gospel message is cloaked 
in, in, in confusion. They don't, uh, the lost people of this world do not understand the message of the gospel. It is a bizarre message to think about Jesus Christ as a Savior and Messiah that has been promised. It's a mystery to them because they cannot see the value of the Lord Jesus nor be drawn to it. It's a mystery because they, they can't appreciate the thread of redemption that's woven through the entire story of Genesis to Revelation. They don't see the promise of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when God curses Adam and Eve for their sin. They cannot see Noah and Abraham and Moses and David being these types of Christ that point forward to a promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will come to this earth. They can't see the promises of salvation to God's chosen people as a reoccurring promise throughout the Scriptures. They can't comprehend a promised land that's more than just a geographical plot for a certain nationality, but instead an eternal home for all who believe. Instead, the rulers of this age, as he calls them, which represent the lost of this world, they see the the scriptures as a divided and disjointed collection of fables and letters that have no unity in themselves. They look at the the Word of God and the the truth of God as as offensive to them, full of holes in the story of the Bible, being critical of its historicity and its revelation of God Himself. Matter of fact, one of the most vocal critics in the last 50 years is Richard Dawkins, the celebrity atheist as I would call him. And in his book, God Delusion, he writes these words, the God of the Old Testament he says, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, he says. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile bully. Wow, those are some pretty harsh words about the God of the Bible who has revealed himself not as those things, but as just and kind, and good, and merciful, and forgiving, and patience. And yet what we see in a statement like this is clearly a blindness to the truths of God that He's revealed in His Word. And therefore, the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is clearly a secret and hidden mystery from their eyes. And the contrast then, the contrast in verse 10, if you'll look down, is that these things God has revealed to us, the church, the mature. And how has He done that? Through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That's the contrast, church. Those that can't understand the Bible, can't believe the Bible, therefore will hear the the gospel message being proclaimed and they won't receive it. It will be bizarre to them. It will be uh, lunacy to them. It will be a puzzle that they cannot solve on their own. 
But we sit here today as people who have been imparted wisdom through the preaching of the gospel and the, the, the understanding of the Bible. And that comprehension is a supernatural work of God that Paul is making very clear to us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And thanks be to God that you and I can see and understand God is more than Mr. Dawkins can understand him. That he's allowed us to understand the revelation of God day by day, week by week, so that we can learn and grow and mature together so that we can see the goodness of God and celebrate Him and worship Him. Paul's main section uh, point in this, verse of, uh, this section of verses is that our capacity to understand the gospel is clearly a gift of the Holy Spirit. Be reminded of what Jesus said in John chapter 14. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Paul makes clear that for those who receive God's wisdom, their, 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 their revelation, the, the unveiling of the mystery is clear in their lives because they see the message, they understand the message, they believe the message. He also says that that message has been predestined. That it's been predestined. Look in verse 6 and 7. But among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret wisdom, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God predestined or decreed before the ages for our glory. Paul is talking about the, 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 the beautiful sovereign plan of God which he has planned and foreordained before time began. That he had decreed that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would come to, to earth and put on human flesh and live a perfect life and teach and display the love and truth of God to personify God in the flesh. He would give his life as a ransom for sin by dying in a humiliating death on the cross and rise victoriously from the grave. This was the plan of God to bring his name glory and the message of God's wisdom would be declared throughout the generations and people would be transformed to new life and they would believe in him. And we see that plan coming to fruition That plan never having to change, never having to capitulate to the culture, never having to be adjusted, always bringing about spiritual effect year after year throughout time for the glory of God. But what's interesting is that Paul says that it is decreed before the ages for our glory. Predestined. Before the ages, before God created time and space, the plan of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to send a Redeemer into the world because of uh, a sin that would come uh, into this creation. Why? So that the glory of God would be manifest. But it wouldn't just be about the glory of God, but that we would receive glory in ourselves because of His glory. Paul talks about the, the, the beautiful idea that we are, in, uh, we are in itself a glory with God. 
not receiving the glory of God, but a glory over the wisdom of this world. This is the the power of God on display. He takes what is low and he brings it high to glorify it. While taking that which is high in this world and bringing it low in shame. And so we are the glory of God because God is bringing us glory and saving us and using us in our own shame and our own weakness. We don't have glory in and of ourselves. And it's really a glory that we are given by God so that, as Paul said last week in our passage, so that no human being might boast in the presence of him. It's all his glory. But as God takes what's low, like David, to defeat something like Goliath, when he takes a small fledgling church and he expands it across the globe, He's merely bringing glory to himself as he elevates these that he has saved, showing his great power and his great might. So therefore, it is for our glory because it's for his supreme glory. And you and I are mature in God's eyes. We are saved in God's eyes when we understand the gospel and his wisdom and we receive it. And he helps us grow in maturity and understanding of the Bible so that we might be used in whatever weakness and frailty we might be so that he might be esteemed and magnified in this world. And I hope you see that church in your own life, how God wants to use you to impact the culture and the world around you for the gospel, no matter who you are and what you have done in your life. We are oftentimes people that keep a a long ledger sheet, a, a long resume of our past failures, and that always becomes the hindrance to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Well, you don't know the type of person that I used to be. Well, really, you don't know the type of person that I used to be. But if you submit yourself to the truth of the gospel that God has saved you and forgiven you and washed those things clean, and you understand that God is willing to glorify you by raising you up to bring his own name glory, then you will submit to whatever God's plan is for you, knowing that he could use you to become the next Charles Spurgeon. He could use you to become the next Elizabeth Elliot. Or some uh, amazing, behind-the-scenes, faithful worker of the gospel to bring about spiritual change across this world. And church, we can't allow our own failures and weaknesses to hinder us from being faithful to what God has called us to do because He has saved us. Because we have received the message of the gospel, that he has revealed it to us and we have believed it. He has changed us, therefore let him use us for his glory and for our glory. And secondly, he makes the distinction, as I said, between those who are mature and who have received the gospel message. And secondly, those who have rejected it. The same message has gone out. But Paul makes it clear that there is a distinction here between those who have received it and those who have rejected it. And those who reject God's wisdom, he identifies as the rulers of this age. 
Now, I believe that what he is referring to here most particularly is the rulers of the age in in the time of Christ, in the early church, as he says in verse 8, that none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. These leaders... These religious leaders, these people who had understood the the Old Testament Scriptures, who knew the promises of the Messiah would come, but in their evilness and their blindness of hearts, instead they crucified Him. And it's these rulers of the age that represent the predominant evil and sin of the world. That Paul is not talking specifically just about the certain religious rulers of Jesus' day, but it's what they represent. Those who crucified the Lord of glory, therefore representing the sin that's in this world. Paul tells us that these rulers are ignorant. They did not understand the truths of God's wisdom. They were unable to see and understand the message of Christ. And they are compared and contrasted to those who have received that message. And their action in crucifying Jesus was the fruit of their rejection of him and his claims to be the Messiah. Matter of fact, the irony, as Gordon Fee points out, is that the very ones who were trying to do away with Jesus by crucifying him were in fact carrying out God's predetermined will. So even while in their own evil and in their own wickedness of turning away from the truths of the Scriptures and the promises of God, they were carrying out the very will of God by putting Jesus on the cross. And notice with me in Acts chapter 22 that Peter makes this proclamation in Acts chapter 22. Look at what he, he writes. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through uh, through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice, first of all, Peter is saying the very same thing that Paul is saying. That Jesus Christ in the predetermined plan of God was meant to be sent to die upon the cross to provide salvation to sinners. It was the plan of God in conjunction with the evil hearts of men who were acting in their own responsibility, in their own will, to do what? To reject Jesus, to turn away from the truths and the promises regarding him, and put him to death upon the cross. But who is Peter speaking to in Acts chapter 2? He's not standing before religious leaders. He's standing before thousands of Jews. And he's telling all these Jews, you crucified him. So Paul is saying that the religious leaders crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. But Peter expounds upon that and says, you're all guilty of killing Jesus. You're all guilty of, of, you didn't hammer the nails into his wrists. You didn't press the crown of thorns on his head. 
But we all have this individual responsibility of rejecting Jesus as Lord. So let's not divide ourselves before Christ, before believing in Jesus, that we are any different than these Jewish people of Jesus' day. We may not be hammering the nails, but we rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. We lived in our own sinfulness, in our own arrogance, in our own idolatry because of sin that's within us. And so we, we may not have crucified Jesus, but we live day by day trying to dethrone Him. And this is the weight of sin that bears on us that is represented in the phrase, the rulers of this age. And Paul particularly explains that the gravity of sin, not just with these rulers, but with all people, comes because they lack comprehension. And he quotes in, 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 uh, from Isaiah chapter 64, he quotes for us, look at what he says in verse 8, none of these rulers understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then he quotes a loose quotation of Isaiah 64. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I want you to pay attention to this quote from Isaiah where Paul is using it in the context of the disbelief and rejection of the gospel. And as he quotes it, he focuses on the human faculties of the human body. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. He's focusing on these faculties So that we might understand that human capabilities in and of ourselves to understand the wisdom of God are absent. We cannot understand spiritual realities without the aid of God exposing them to us. They are hidden to us as much as they are hidden to the religious leaders of Jesus' day until God gives us the capability to, to understand them. They are spiritual realities that are hidden to us. For example, think about the fact that only angels appear to man on earth when God allowed men to see those angels and those angels visited. No human eye can see angels until God allows them and sends them down upon the earth so that our eyes can comprehend a spiritual created being. Angels exist. They live through day by day. We cannot comprehend them. We cannot see them with our eyes until God so allows us by His spiritual power to understand their existence. And as in Jesus' day, see them with their own eyes. And likewise, only the human eyes can be so amazed by the spiritual power of Jesus and cherish Him as Lord when God opens our spiritual eyes to see Jesus and cherish Him and love Him. Similarly, all the people at Jesus' baptism were there on a normal day watching a man be baptized until they did what? They heard the voice of God speak to them, saying, Behold my Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Before then, they had never heard the voice of God. They may not have ever heard the voice of God again, but in that moment, by the power and the pleasing will of God, he chose to allow his voice to be heard and comprehended so the crowds of people would know and see the affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God. And so only by the power of the Spirit then can we also hear with human ears the words of God and understand them. So you hear a lot of times, if I could just hear God speak to me, then I would believe in Him and I would trust in Him. And church, let me tell you that He has given us His Spirit to hear Him speak through the revealed Word of God. He's given it to us. You have what you need to hear the Word of God as you read this holy text. And of course, only the human heart has a love for God when God so opens the heart to believe like Lydia Before his opening of the heart spiritually, our hearts are dead to him and separated because of God. And so he says these rulers of the age, in my opinion and interpretation, representing all those who reject the message of God's wisdom and the gospel, he gives the sad conclusion to them. In verse 6 he says that these... These rulers of the age are doomed to pass away. Paul describes these rejectors of God's wisdom as destined for destruction. And what's interesting is that the Greek text highlights that this destruction is not a natural consequence of their hard living, but a supernatural act of God putting upon them His destruction continually. It is a present tense action with continuing results signifying the fact that even as history progresses, God is continually humiliating and lowering those of this earth that trust in themselves and reject the gospel as He elevates His name and His glory. He is never extinguished. His work is never subsided. He is continually carrying out and bringing forth His perfect will while lowering and humiliating and shaming those who reject His name. And if we're honest with ourselves as a church, we will acknowledge that it's hard to see that at times. Because we don't have the spiritual eyes at times to see the things that God is doing. And we grow in despair. Is God really doing great things in this world? All I can see is on CNN and Fox News, God is just, I'm surrounded by all this evil. And I think in those moments, Satan wants us to be discouraged at the work of God in this world. So that we would be inactive in what he's called us to do. But the truth of the matter is the promise of the matter is not that they will one day be doomed to pass away. They are already doomed and they are already passing away until Christ comes in the end and fully delivers his wrath upon them. Listen, throughout the history of those who have disbelieved in the gospel... 
They died in their own destruction, and yet the church has consistently and continually grown and manifested itself throughout all time and history since its inception, proclaiming the gospel message without fail. Even as the, 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 the weight and the pressure of persecution arose upon the church and continues to, to do so, God in His sovereignty makes the church grow even more in those circumstances. That might be the best thing that could happen to the United States of America. That the pressures of persecution might reveal the true realities of who is saved and who is lost so that the church would truly grow under such a persecution. Now listen, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to experience that. But as a father, I've had to teach my children, this, even this week, my own son, reminding him that in his generation, it's going to be twice as hard to be a believer in Jesus Christ and he better be ready to go to jail if he loves Jesus. Because that's the way the world is coming. And we have to be prepared for such a reality. But we can't lose heart. God will sustain us. He will preserve us. Even if we die under the, the acts of persecution, we know that God is uh, securing our, our souls in, in heaven. So we have no reason to fear and be afraid, and we must not be disheartened in thinking that evil is winning. It has been defeated. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul basically is concluding his letter to the Corinthians, and he reminds them reminds them of the work of Christ, the spiritual awakening and the resurrection, and what that signifies in the transformation of new life in Christians. And he reminds them in verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Church, those are not just future concepts. The Bible tells us that Jesus triumphed over the domain of darkness when dying upon the cross. He will not triumph. He has triumphed. <clears throat> and so we must trust in Him and be encouraged of the great work of the gospel that goes forth. Knowing that the judgment will come for those who reject the message of the gospel. And that Jesus will come as a valiant warrior who will lay waste to all who deny him. And he will bring judgment upon all human rulers and authorities that are alive on those days, facing his most vicious wrath for their sin. And so Paul draws the line, this distinction for us, so that we can understand in humanity, in our relationship to God, whether we have received the great message, whether we understand the gospel message in truth, or we think it's ignorant, and we reject it as it's been delivered to us. For us as believers, we rejoice in the great gift of grace, whereby God has allowed our human faculties to understand and, and, and receive the spiritual truth of the gospel by His Holy Spirit empowerment. 
And we will look next week at the continual work of the Spirit and how He so makes that happen, how He allows us to so uh, to believe and trust in Him. But Paul also brings light to the rejectors of God's wisdom as those lacking understanding and the spiritual capacity to believe and receive the truth of the gospel. And maybe that's you today. There are countless people in churches all over this country today that consider themselves a part of the community of Christ because they attend a fellowship of believers. But they don't understand the gospel. They aren't trusting in Jesus. They are literally a part of a religious community that did very little to to, uh, challenge them or examine them on their true belief in Jesus. They were just happy for them to come into the building, pay their tithe every week, fill the pews, and be a pleasant face to look at every Sunday and Wednesday night. But the sad reality is that they have never comprehended the gospel. They have never trusted fully in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. They have not made Him Lord of their life. And therefore, they are doomed to the judgment of God. Does that describe you today? Are you living in this fallacy, in this error that Christ has saved you? When you really truly don't understand and believe the gospel. My prayer, friend, is that you would believe in him. That you would shed and turn away and repent of the sins in your life. And you would trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Understanding that in your own wisdom and your own strength, there will be no way possible for you to befriend and please a holy God. And Christians, church family, as we understand these spiritual realities, as those who reject the gospel, we understand how to pray. I believe sometimes that we approach God in prayer on behalf of our lost family and friends. Lord, please help me be more persuasive. Lord, please help me to have the right timing Maybe the right outfit on that day to to make the message of the gospel palatable to them. When really and truly what we need to be praying is, Lord, equip them with the capabilities to understand the gospel that I will faithfully proclaim to them. So that they might believe. Trusting in the sovereignty of God that only He can open their eyes and their hearts to hear and see and believe the reality of their sin and destruction. Only He can open their eyes to see Jesus and cherish Him as an undeserving recipient of His grace that He's lavished upon sinners. Only He can do those things, church. And so our response would be simply a fervent and pleading prayer for God to show mercy on those who we love, to come to know Christ trusting in Him to bring about a transformative work in His sovereign plan. Next week we will look at 
how such a, a, a situation of spiritual renewal happens in the remaining verses of 11 or 10 through 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great transformative work in our hearts that you would allow us to believe in Jesus, that you would allow us to comprehend and understand that you did not leave us in our sin, that you did not leave us in our blindness and our hardness of heart. But God, you removed the veil so that we might see Christ for all his glory, for all his majesty and worth. That you allowed us to see how depraved and corrupt our human nature is. How detestable the acts of sin that we commit are to a holy God. How offensive and vulgar it is to the one who created us. And you allowed us to see and understand that the work of Christ is a free gift. So thank you for the faith to believe. And God, we pray that you would do the same transformative work in those that we love. Trusting you, Father, to do that work as we are faithful to teach them about sin. Stand firm upon and proclaim the truths of the gospel without trying to water them down. Knowing that only you can bring belief into their heart. This is our plea, God. Our children, our grandparents, our friends, our co-workers. We pray that you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand together.